Well, hello again, Grove family, friends. Uh, it's good to be with you again. I hope you're well. The news that's coming to all of us is that we're opening up, beginning that process. Uh, there are a lot of people excited about that and uh, praying in a lot of ways about that. So uh, that's, that's the good news this week. Is, and I, I've just got to say that I'm looking forward to that point where we're back together in this building as a church body. We're singing and we're praying and we're studying together. That, that, that's, a, that's a good day, not too far away. Let me encourage you, if you haven't done so already, to gather some, some uh, things for communion. Gather something liquid, a juice, water, tea. Grab something solid, a cracker. Piece of bread, grab those things. If you haven't done so already, print off the bulletin and uh, that, that, that insert page for the message. And if you need to do that right now, pause the video and go get those things and, and, and come back and, and join in with us. When I was 13 years old, my brother, another friend, Ron, and I, we were standing at the gate of what we believed was an old, abandoned farm. We, we, we grew up in Orange County, California, and it was so named because of the myriad number of orange trees, orange groves that covered literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of square miles of the county. Um, I, I've put in a couple of pictures here so you could see these are pictures of Orange County from when I was growing up. The bottom picture is of Disneyland. And as you're looking at that picture, you can see literally surrounding Disneyland are nothing but orchards. Today, that's completely different. But back then, orange trees were everywhere. Over the years, many of those orchards were ripped out. Uh, the orchards were sold so that they could build housing tracks and, and business centers. And uh, as that happened, sometimes, the old farmhouses in a, in a plot of land would, would remain standing. And so there, there'd maybe be 10, 20 acres of, of citrus trees, orange trees, and then kind of in the middle of that would be an orchard house and a farm. The, the gate we were standing in front of on this Saturday morning represented one of those 15 or 20 acre plots of ground. The, the, but the trees were not there anymore. They were, they were long dead, long had been hauled off. And the weeds in this place, from what we could see behind this gate, were literally, were literally like waist high. The place looked completely abandoned. So what we did was completely ignored the no trespassing sign that was hanging on that gate. We, we, just, we just climbed right over the gate and, and we were running into this old farm to inspect all the old stuff that was around there. The, the old tractor uh, that was literally rotting, rusting away. There, there was a trailer with flattened tires and, and a bunch of old stuff on it. Farm implements that were kind of scattered all over the place. There were barrels and, and, and metal drums that were stacked all over. And then there was the old barn. It was, it was literally rotting away. It looked looked like it hadn't been painted in like a thousand years. And, and just as I walked to the very front of this barn where the doors were, thinking about going inside and exploring that, suddenly I was hearing a noise. And it was the noise of an animal that was running through the weeds. And as I turned around, what I noticed that it was a dog. 
and it was a big old mean teeth teeth barred husky now i turned to run but the thing was was moving so fast it was literally on my heels in seconds and so kind of i just spun around to face this thing and i was going to yell at it to try to scare you know but 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 it was it was too late as i was turning around the dog was already lunging at me it grabbed a hold of my leg, bit me, and as, as, as I was going down in the weeds, it was literally jumping onto my chest with its teeth literally just inches away from my face. It was snarling, barking fiercely, spit was flying out of its mouth, and, and that's when the shotgun was pushed into my nose. So much for the old abandoned farmhouse the old geezer with the gun proved that theory completely wrong. And, and as I sat there with this dog and this gun in my face, the thought that hit me was, where was my brother and, and Ron? Where were they? And the answer was, long gone. You talk about fear. In that moment, 45 years ago, is literally cemented in my mind. On that Saturday morning, I thought I was going to die. And just thinking about it today can literally send a shiver up my spine and cause a cold sweat to break out over my entire body. And here's the deal. Fear has that kind of power in our lives. And when it comes to fear, I'm not alone. The, the reality is many people's lives are driven by fear. Now, sometimes the things that people are afraid of could be considered irrational or crazy. Things like, Ontholophobia. Have you heard of that? Do you have that fear? It's the fear of belly buttons. Or, or ombrophobia, which is the fear of rain. Or allodoxophobia, which is the fear of opinions. And then there's phobophobia, which is the fear of fear. The list of phobias is really long. Look it up sometime. I mean, it goes on pages and pages and pages of them. People are afraid of everything. And while you may scoff, and say that many people's phobias are irrational, the truth is that there are some fears that make sense. Things like the fear of what we can't control, the fear of tomorrow, afraid of things like the economy, retirement, health. In the last eight weeks, our country has taken an uppercut square on the chin. 33 million people have filed for unemployment in the last seven weeks. And lots of commentators believe that the number is significantly higher for the number of people who couldn't get their claims filed. Retirement accounts have been ravished for the second time in a dozen years. There, there's this looming fear of sickness and potential death with, with some prognosticators saying the worst is yet to come. There, there are people that are living in fear of tomorrow, what they can't control. Others are afraid of failure. They're afraid of their shortcomings, that, that their sh shortcomings will literally drive them into the ground. I, I remember going to seminary all those years ago, 40 years ago, and, and when, I, when I got there, um, my first paper was due. I worked, I worked literally for days and days and days on this short little like seven-page thought paper. I turned it in, and when I got it back, I had a C on it. For all the trouble that I had gone for this paper and for the grade I got, I, I was thinking that I was in way over my head, that I was going to fail, I was going to flunk out. <laughs> and I was on scholarship. 
a whole lot of people are promoted into jobs that they're just really certain that they'll never be able to accomplish, never be able to do, that they're going to fail and then get fired. Some people live with a fear of exposure. The people will find out who they are, that they're, that they're frauds. A lot of people suffer here. They have some kind of a secret sin in their life, some horrible thing that has the potential of doing great damage to a lot of people. And they live in fear every day they wake up thinking, today is the day that it's going to be exposed. Some people live for a fear of lack of resource. I will not have what I need. And there are all kinds of people suffering with that today as well. With the coronavirus, the thinking is, I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to join those 30 or 40 or 50 million people who have lost their job. And then it's, it will be a domino effect. Because I won't have any money, I'll lose everything. The utilities will be turned off. The house will be repossessed. The car will be repossessed. Everything will be taken away. I'll be out on the streets, literally rotting away. With unemployment as, it's, as, as high as it's been in 100 years, it's no wonder that people have that kind of fear. Some people fear eternity. Their thought is that they're bound for hell. I mean, and really, honestly, this may be the greatest fear of all. I'm going to hell. That's where I'm going to spend eternity. There's nothing that anybody can do about it. And sadly, there are a whole lot of Christians that are living in that same, that same fear. They have no confidence. They're not sure at all about their eternal destiny. So my question is, how about you? If, if you were to be honest would you be forced to admit that there are things in life with which you're afraid? Which leads to the second thought, and that's the command. The command of the Bible is really clear. Do not be afraid. Fear should be far removed from our lives. I mean, it should literally be gone. According to the Bible, the issues, the cares, the pains, the problems, the difficulties, the situations, the, 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 the really problematic things in life should be no cause for fear. And when those things rise in our lives, when it looks like they're coming at us like in a tidal wave, the command of the Bible is really simple. Refuse to give in. Don't be afraid. Psalm 118, verse 6 says, The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. Now, the, the Bible's filled with encouragement down this road. And I've put a few of those passages of Scripture into your notes. I hope you'll take some time to read from the book of Psalms, from, from the book of Isaiah. When trouble pours into our lives, the tendency of a lot of people is to be frightened by it and to turn it into worry. And we become worry wards trying to figure out how to fix it, how to solve it, how to get rid of that problem. And the, the encouragement of the Bible is to not do that because there's just some things that can't be fixed, some things that can't be solved. So what God says is to take all of your fear and all of your anxiety, and wad it up and do what Peter encourages us in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7 to do, which is to cast it on the Lord. Cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Now, now the Bible is filled with encouragement to push fear and worry completely out of your lives, to not spend one minute worrying about or being fearful of anything in this life, which raises the question, how do you get away from fear driving your life? Well, that's the next point. Number three, it's the solution. The solution to fear and anxiety 
is to trust God. Trust that God is able to take care of you. The antidote to fear is trust. Isaiah 50, Psalm 56 verse 10 says, In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust. I will not be afraid what can man do to me. God says that the focus of our lives should not be in this world and the problems we face. Our focus should always be on God. On him, the God who promises you that he will watch over you and take care of you and bring you securely to eternity with him. He will see you through. Now in life, you literally have a choice. The the choice is where you will focus your attention when trouble and pain and problems and all of that heavy stuff come pouring in. And when you choose to allow yourself to be the focus, well, it's no wonder that you would be afraid or worried or troubled. This world is filled with problems that are bigger than me. It's, it's not, if it's not the coronavirus, it's something else. And honestly, my ability to handle all of that is very limited. That's why when trouble comes along, I need to hand my concerns over to the one who can handle it. And that would be God. There, there, there is a strong correlation between fear and trust. And the Bible is really clear here. As your trust in God increases, your fear in the issues of life should really radically decrease. Trust in God increase, fear decrease. The more you put the commands and promises of God to work in your life, the more you find that God is completely true to his promise. His promises are real. They work. And that increases your trust. When when God tells you to step out, when God encourages you to do certain things and you actually do them and they actually work, then what that does is it drives fear out of your lives. Eventually, you get to the point where you have no concerns about this world. Why? Because you are in complete trust relationship with God. You completely believe that he will take care of you. Now, the Bible's full of examples of people who grew to a point where they simply did not fear anything in this world. And that would be in spite of huge things that were literally falling in around them. And that's where I want to turn next. I want to turn to one of my favorite stories in the Bible, and it's found in Daniel chapter 3. In Daniel 3, we come across one of these examples. And the example is radical trust in the face of overwhelming trouble. Now, if there were ever people in jeopardy, it was the Jews that we read about in Daniel chapter 3. A chapter earlier, in chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And this dream, this vision in the end is going to go straight to Nebuchadnezzar's head in a really horrible way. The dream itself, the vision, was of a huge statue. The statue was made up of many different kinds of metal. The head was pure gold. The chest and arms were of silver. The belly, thighs, they were of bronze. The legs were made out of iron, and the feet were a mixture of iron and clay. And then 
in this vision, this dream, a rock was cut out of the mountain and it was rolled at the statue. And as it rolled towards the statue, it it hit it and it basically blew it into smithereens. It destroyed the statue. And then this rock became a mountain that filled the whole earth. Now, wise men from Nebuchadnezzar's court were called in by the king to do two things. First, the king wanted them to reveal the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. And I I want you to key in here. The king wanted to know who among his counselors could actually see. And and so he didn't tell anybody what the dream was. The, The king's expectation was that these seers, these astrologers, these magicians, that, that they would be able to see into his head and that they would be able to know the dream that he had had without him telling them. That way, the king would know who he could actually rely on or not. And second, he wanted the person who would be able to figure out what the dream was to reveal the interpretation as well, to tell the king what it meant. And here's the bottom line. Failure to reveal and explain the vision would would out the seers. It It would proclaim them as frauds. And Nebuchadnezzar said, if that were to happen, (laughs) they would all be put to death. And he would put them to death by literally cutting them into pieces. Now, as you might imagine, all of the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, astrologers were completely up in arms because they were frauds. They knew they had no ability to tell the king what was in his head. And, And now that Nebuchadnezzar's outing them, they're in a complete state of panic. Now, word came to the prophet Daniel who, by the way, was a true prophet. And it came because Arioch, who was one of the king's commanders, was was sent to Daniel's house to to, to round up Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The, the, The time for interpreting and the time for revealing the vision had had come and gone. Now the interesting thing is Daniel hadn't heard of any of this. So as he's hearing from Arioch that he's going to be cut into pieces with all the other guys, he's appealing for a little bit more time. He goes to the king, asks the king to be patient for a couple of days. I just heard about this. And the king grants his request. Daniel then goes back to his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he, he, he asks them to join him in pleading to God for mercy. And, and here's the deal. God answered that very night the vision was revealed along with the interpretation to Daniel. So Daniel made his way back to the king and giving glory to God, saying that all of this came from Jehovah, the true God, Daniel told the king his dream. And then he explained the interpretation. He laid out the vision of the statue that was made up of all the various metals. And and then he told the king that it was basically a timeline The various pieces of the statue represented four kingdoms that would follow in line. Nebuchadnezzar was the greatest of these kingdoms. He was the first. He was the head. He was the king of kings. He was represented by the golden part of the statue, the head. Eventually, God would destroy all of these earthly kingdoms and set up a kingdom of his own. God's kingdom that would never be destroyed. It would endure forever like a big, powerful mountain. Now, Daniel's revealing of the dream and the interpretation had a positive effect. First, all of the other seers and sorcerers and magicians in Babylon were saved. They, they weren't cut into pieces. And second, it caused Nebuchadnezzar to bring praise 
to the true God, to Jehovah, the king. Yes, the great king Nebuchadnezzar actually fell prostrate on the ground in front of Daniel and gave him honor. And then Nebuchadnezzar said in Daniel chapter 2, verse 47, surely your God, Daniel, is, is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. And third, Daniel was actually lifted up. He was placed in a high position in the king's court. Literally, he ruled the king, kingdom of Babylon just under Nebuchadnezzar himself. And then he was lavished with gifts. And, and then what Daniel did is he asked the king to take his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they were lifted up as well. Now, as chapter 3 of Daniel opens, Nebuchadnezzar is now kind of moving to this kind of twisted, twisted place. Nebuchadnezzar sets up a 90-foot-tall statue made of gold out on the plain of Dura. Nebuchadnezzar was the great golden king in the vision in chapter 2. He, and so now he's going to take full advantage of the prophetical statement and he's going to exalt himself. Nebuchadnezzar gathered all of the important people in Babylon. He brought them out to the plain of Dura. He had them stand in front of the statue of him. And then a herald loudly announced the proclamation that was being made that day. It was an edict. Daniel chapter 3, verse 4 says, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the, the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the, the pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and whoever does not worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. It was a simple statement. Bow or die. And Nebuchadnezzar had set himself up as a god, and now he's wanting people to venerate him as such. And it wasn't just for the upper crust in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. This act of bowing down before the king was for all people. Nobody was exempt. And wouldn't you know that there was a group of people who used this new edict, this law, this proclamation to their advantage? And that's letter B. An act of anti-Semitic hate was instituted. Back in chapter 2, Daniel saved all of the astrologers, sorcerers, magicians, and enchanters. He saved their necks by telling Nebuchadnezzar the dream and its true meaning. You would have thought that these guys were grateful, but they weren't. Some of them lost their positions of power and authority when Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were promoted. And that led them to anger. They, they were looking for revenge. And the king's new edict gave them the opportunity. So these men made their way to the king. O king, live forever. Daniel 3, verse 9 says, You have issued a decree. And then down in verse 12, they go on, But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, I, I don't know why Daniel's not listed here because he would have been the head guy, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you set up. In other words, they're not worshiping you. Not, none of this was a surprise because no faithful Jew was ever going to bow to any other god. I mean, that's commanded in the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20. 
There's no other way to see this than flat-out jealousy and hate. These guys wanted their positions of power back, and they didn't care who, who they had to step on in order to make it happen, which leads to letter C, and that would be an unhinged king. When the king heard the report, Daniel 3.13 says that he was furious with anger. Now, the words here in the Hebrew are very descriptive. The word translated rage is regaz. It speaks of violent anger. Think of someone flying off the handle, out of control, throwing stuff, breaking stuff, screaming and yelling, ranting and raving. And then there's the word fury. This word is chema. And it, it, it speaks of a person who is like literally seeing red. Have you ever looked into the eyes of somebody that is just crazy and just looking into their eyes can scare you? That would have been, that would have been King Nebuchadnezzar. He had completely lost it. Furious with rage. Now, I, wa I want you to think about this. These, these guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were among his top advisors. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were all about serving Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, yes, they wouldn't do anything to undermine the Lord, God, Jehovah. He sat as the authority of their lives. But just because they have a higher authority in their life, like the true God, that doesn't make them bad advisors to the king. In fact, quite the contrary. It makes them the best advisors to the king. They, they would never lie. They would never cheat, steal, dishonor, or undermine the king in any way. Their deep and intimate relationship with God would, would keep them, would not allow them to do that. And make sure you notice that wasn't true about the guys that were making the accusations. The, these guys were not about the king. They were all about themselves. They were all about keeping their spots, getting back their power, getting their authority. They didn't, they, they, they didn't care who got in the way of their quest for this power, including the king. So these advisors to the king went straight to the king and they made their accusation. And Nebuchadnezzar flips out. He summons Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to his presence. And when they arrive, Nebuchadnezzar confronts them. Verse 14 says, the king said, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up? In other words, is it true that you don't worship me? Now, honestly, Nebuchadnezzar already knew the answer to that question. But Nebuchadnezzar believed he was a god, worthy of being worshipped. So without giving them an opportunity to answer his question or to make any kind of explanation, the king just laid out an ultimatum. Daniel 3.15, he says, I'm going to play the instruments. I'm going to play them right now, and you're going to bow down. You're going to, I'm going to play them now. You're going to bow down now. And if you don't bow down, the consequences are going to flow like now. So there it was. The line is drawn. And now the focus turns to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What would they do? Being burned alive is an ugly, ugly, ugly death. If it were you, if the furnace was being stoked up right in front of your eyes right at this moment, how would you respond? Would, 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 you, would you try and justify the action? 
Would you tell yourself it's really no big deal? With an out of control, unhinged king, I'm allowed a little leeway here to kind of, to kind of, to kind of, you know, mess with the commandments of God a little bit. I mean, God will certainly understand a simple bowing of the knee to this king. And you know, in, in, in my heart, I'm gonna know I'm not bowing to I'm not bowing to Nebuchadnezzar. What I'm really doing is bowing to God. He he thinks it's him, but it doesn't matter what he thinks. This is for Jehovah, this is for Jehovah. And what I love here is these guys don't even have to think. They, they, they already knew where they stood. They already knew what they would say. So they just said it. And what I want you to notice here is that they had no fear. At the king's behest, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego spoke. Daniel 3, verse 16, they said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods and we will not worship the image of gold that you've set up. Now, as you look at this passage of Scripture and these words, I want to make sure you notice several things. First, notice they're calm. They're not screaming. They're not pleading. They're not crying. They're not out of control. They're not asking for time to consider what to do, seek a compromise. Notice their respect. They, they refer to the king by his title. They're not calling him names, you stupid fool, you ignoramus. No, notice they're completely fearless. The furnace had no power whatsoever to cause these men to shrink in fear. Notice their trust in God. Don't, don't miss that statement in verse 17. God is able to save us. They had complete trust in God and his power and in his authority. And notice their resolve. Even if God would choose not to save us, even if our fate is to go into that furnace and die, we will not bow down, calm, collected, fearless. And I'm just telling you, that response drove Nebuchadnezzar to, to come even more unhinged. The words in verse 19 were hardly out of the three young Jewish men's mouth, and now the king's acting. He had the furnace stoked up seven times hotter. He had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego bound up, tied up with ropes. He ordered them thrown into the furnace like now. The furnace was so hot that these guys that were in charge of throwing them into the furnace, the, the, Daniel 3 tells us that they were consumed by the heat. How, how'd, you, how'd you like to have their job? And it all led straight to an unbelievable miracle. There must have been some kind of huge viewing window into the interior of the furnace. I don't know, maybe this was sport in Babylon, sport in the days of Nebuchadnezzar, you know, sort of like the throwing Christians to the lions in, 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 in Rome is, 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 all the, is all the people gather in the Colosseum to watch it happen. You know, people bring lawn chairs and a, and a, and a picnic basket and they cheer on the writhing pain of those in the furnace. 
But that's not what happened. As Nebuchadnezzar is peering into the furnace, he's suddenly left to his feet. And he's asking a question in Daniel 3.24. Weren't there, weren't there three men that we, that we tied up and threw into the fire? But what Nebuchadnezzar saw was not three, but four people in the, in the furnace. And there was more. Daniel 3.25 says that, the, that the, the four men were unbound, unharmed, and the fourth looked like some kind of a son of the gods. As all of this was quickly unfolding, Nebuchadnezzar's countenance was just as quickly changing. The king approached the furnace, called for the three Jewish men to come out, and in the process called them servants of the Most High God. And as the three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, made their way out of the furnace, the, the king and all of the servants crowded around him, and what they saw was amazing. Daniel 3.27 says they saw that the fire had not burned their bodies. There wasn't a hair of their heads that was singed. Their robes were not scorched. There was no smell of fire on them. I mean, it was an absolute miracle. What they all were witnessing was the impossible outside of the intervention of God. And as a result, the name of the Lord was praised. As it all smacked Nebuchadnezzar literally right across the nose, he was suddenly speaking. In verse 28, he said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and, de and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. And then the king issued a decree. He said, therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be burned into piles of rubble for no other God can save in this way. This pagan, self-centered, self-righteous, self-serving king was suddenly bowing the knee to the true God and it could only happen because three young men stood fearlessly in their faith and trust of God. It all begs that we ask a question, a really important question that forms the last point. And the question serves as a point of application, and that is simply, how do you grow to stand fearlessly for God? I'm just telling you, I, I, I want to live like these three young men. I want to be fearless for God. And I'm sure you do too. I mean, we would all say that we want to be fearless for God. So how do you do it? Well, to help enable you here, I want to suggest that you take a few simple steps. And you begin by simply putting God in his rightful place. And that is the throne of your life. Here's the truth. God is God. And is God, he alone deserves to sit on the throne of authority in your life. So my suggestion to you is that you put him there. Determine that you will bow to him because he is God. Determine that you will know his word, that you will grow in, in a deep and abiding knowledge of his word. Determine to 
to put it into practice. Put God on the throne of your life. Know who he is. Nobody, nobody wants, nobody desires. And then commit to practicing it. And that leads to a second step, to, to remind yourself. And I mean to constantly remind yourself of God's work in your past. Now, last week, as we talked about growing in your trust of God, I suggested to you that you should get a journal and keep it. That you should write those moments in your life that God was at work and how God accomplished certain things and how he was true to his promise. And this is where that journal comes in handy because you have the ability to go back and see how God has been at work in your life. You come up against a problem or a struggle or an issue, and you go back and you see that when you got to these kind of places before, God was always true to his word. He always kept his promises. Now, now the truth is, is that God is constantly at work in your life. And the promise of scripture is that he is out for your good. His commands are not burdensome. He's not some great cosmic killjoy who's trying to make your life miserable. No, his heart is always about your good. John 10.10 says that the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. The word here is abundant. Abundant. It's the enemy. It's Satan who is out to do you harm. God is only about lifting you up to be all he created you to be. And when you look back over your life at those times when you submitted to his will and you submitted to his way and you submitted to his commands, you can see how true that is. There, there, were, there were times, there have been times in your life that, that his word, his will, his way, his commands just didn't seem right. They didn't seem fair. They didn't seem best. But when you Take time to look back on those seasons when you look back and see those times when you actually stepped out to do the things that God wanted you to do, to respond in ways that God wanted you to respond. You know that it always worked out for your good. Now, a walk of faith is about looking back and seeing those seasons in your life that God was at work. And then and then understanding that those past choices to follow God and live in his blessing to be the strong encouragement to step out in faith today and follow him. So it leads to letter C. Allow God's faithfulness in your past to cultivate your trust in him today. As you survey your past and remind yourself of how God has worked how he has been true to every promise he has made. Every time you put him on to the test, he was faithful. You allow that to push you further down the road of trust. Your trust increases. And that should color your present. If God was not faithful, if God's promises have been broken, then, then run away. But the truth is, when you have followed God, he has been faithful. Even in those seasons where it didn't make sense, he was faithful. So allow the past to cultivate your present view of things and then take a fourth step. Letter D, purposefully step out in faith. Back then, it didn't make sense. You took the step, it worked. So today, determine to do the same thing. Determine to step out, to trust. And that step of faith will do powerful things. It will increase your trust in God 
because he will again be true to his word and promise. And as your trust grows, you will find fear dissipating in your life. Faith, your faith, is intended to grow. You start out small, and then you move to bigger things. When God called Abraham, he didn't say, kill your son, sacrifice your son. No, he said, move. It's years later that God says, now I want you to sacrifice your son. All these years of walking in faith with God gave him a platform to understand that the promises of God were true. I can trust him here. Isaac is the son of promise. If God wants me to sacrifice him, he will raise him from the dead. Abraham stepped out in faith. Why? Because God was faithful all these years in the past. That's what God wants you to do. Start out small and then move to bigger things. Now, here's the truth, friends. Fear in your life is a barometer of your trust quotient with God. How could Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand so confidently with, with no fear before a king who's completely out of control? Well, they could do it because they had complete trust in the Lord. Their faith and trust had grown to a point that there was no fear. And it will work that way with you as well. As your trust in God grows, your fear will dissipate. The way we make a difference in the world is to show the world that God is the better solution. His ways are worth following. He is true. He is right. He is just. He is kind. He is good. And in this day of fear, our world is in desperate need of some people to stand up and make that statement. Am I afraid of the coronavirus? No. Why? Because God can see me through. And he will see me through. He will march me through. Let's be people of trust. Let's be people of faith. And as we are putting our faith and trust in God, let's encourage fear to move away. Bow your heads. And friends, let me just ask you today, what are, what are you afraid of? And specifically, what are you afraid of with what God has asked you to do? What has you up at night? What has you not being able to sleep? What has you pacing the floor? What has you all wrapped up and knotted up? What is it that you're holding on to, seeking a solution that you can't find? What I want to encourage you to do is give it up. Cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Give it to God. Be far away from the worry. Be far away from the fear and trust that God is bigger and more powerful and able to see you through. So Lord, help us. As you did with those three young Jewish men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Father, may their complete trust in you, in your power, in your strength, in your might, be alive in us today. May that raw determination to put you on the throne of their lives be with us as well. And Father, may you have your way with us because we are willing to follow you to that end.
Father, may our trust grow. May our fear dissipate. And Father, as it was in Daniel chapter 3, may it be today. May your name be praised among the people. It's our prayer. And we lift it up in the name of the one who makes it possible, Jesus. Hey, would you say it with me? Amen. So friends, as we get ready to uh, take communion today, I, 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 I want to remind you again that God is calling you to lay your life into his hands, to follow him faithfully. To not do that is a sin. So as we come to the Lord's Supper today, I, I want to encourage you to think, are there areas in your life where you are fearful of steps of faith? What are, what are those areas? Is it relationally? Is it financially? Is it evangelistically? What, 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 what is it that has you all tied up in knots and fearful about what, is God, what God has called you to do? What I want to encourage you to do this morning at this time of con communion is confess it. Confess it. Put it right before God. Say, here it is, Lord. Here's where I'm struggling. Ask God to build your faith and trust that he will do it. And then commit. Commit. Actually hand those fears to God and commit to taking the step that he's asked you to take. And then as you have made that commitment, partake of the elements. And thank God. Thank God in advance for the way that he is going to work through your faithfulness to his commands to move in powerful ways. So Father, we're grateful. Grateful for Jesus who was willing to lay down his will and his life to do the thing that he was afraid of, that he was concerned about. And that was to give himself on our behalf. Fathers, he confessed in the garden that he really didn't want to do it. He wanted you to find another way. His end prayer was, not my will, but yours. And so Lord, here at this moment, I pray that that would be our prayer too. Not our will, but yours. Father, may you help us to be strong, to commit, to stand, to trust, to allow fear to dissipate because our eyes and our hands are on you. And Father, as we commit to you, Father, help these, envelope, these emblems to, to solidify that in our lives. Move in power, Father, as we trust you and choose to not fear is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.